Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have joined forces to battle evil, the newest heroes joining the champions of the Golden Age, presenting Tales of the Justice Society of America. Welcome to episode two of Tales of the Justice Society of America. Hey everybody, Michael Bailey here, co-host of Tales of the Justice Society of America, with a with a quick message, uh, actually more of a correction, really. Uh, as you just heard, uh, Scott Gardner, my co-host, Introduce the show as episode two, and, and it's not episode two. It's it's actually episode three, and uh, really and truly, this is why we, we don't let Scott drink, you know, while producing the episode. And we don't let him drink before the episode. I, I guess the moral of this story is that Scott should just lay off the sauce altogether, and we're going to work on that as soon as possible. So uh, I'm really sorry. And hey, wait, Scott, 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 put put the bottle down, Scott. Just just put the bottle down. It's it's going to be okay, Scott. Put the bottle down. <sighs> Anyways, back to the show. Damn it, I have to clean up this mess. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the show. I am Scott Gardner, and with me is fellow transplanted Georgian, Michael Bailey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Georgia transplant to the extreme, yeah. both from the north, yo. Yep. <laughs> both damn Yankees, as we're constantly reminded of. Da- yes, damn Yankees represent. <laughs> we need to come up with our own gang sign. I believe it's, oh yeah, we kicked your ass in the Civil War. <laughs> Remember that Civil War thing? <laughs> oh, we're going to get letters right out of the gate. But hey, speaking of letters, what yes. a keen segue. We got mail already. This is awesome. Only second, uh, what is it? Yeah, second episode. Or wait, no, well, third episode. Third episode. If I could read my notes, I'd realize these things. Yes, <laughs> third episode, and we have mail already. Uh, yes, uh, my, my good buddy Dion Cottrell, from, who uh, is a regular writer and listener to my other podcast, From Crisis to Crisis, uh, sent us uh, basically in the same format he does for Jeffrey and I over at uh, over at FCTC. Uh, he writes, Scott and Michael, an excellent kickoff to this new podcast. I've rehearsed my love for DC's Earth 2 and Earth S, Earth X, etc. characters on Michael's blog, but below are my initial thoughts slash observations regarding the show. Here's looking forward to a long and productive run. Dion, uh, what he's referring to there is um, when Scott uh, Scott and I first decided to do the show, to kind of get my creative and, and, and like fan juices flowing, I did over on Fortress of Bailey 2 Justice Society Week where I talked about different things involving the Justice Society, and that was kind of like supposed to be the lead-up to the announcement. It didn't quite work out that way, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I posted a lot of stuff, so go over to FortressOfBailey2.com and uh, scroll down to Categories in Justice Society of America Week. Uh, because there's some there's some interesting scans there that I'm that I was quite happy to dig out of the archives. Uh, but Dion writes, I'm closer to Scott's age than Michael's, so my experiences with the JSA are much like Scott's. JLA JSA crossovers and All Star Comics first, with the culminations of sorts coming finally with uh, Roy Thomas's Corpus, All Star Squadron, Infinity Incorporated, Young All Stars. The latter 1990s material was also significant, but none of it, with perhaps the exception of Golden Age, I guess he's referring to the miniseries, really hit me the way those 1970s and early 80s pre-crisis stories did. Either way, I love all things Earth 2, etc., and continue to buy related titles regardless of creative team or quality, something I only rarely do with other features. Uh, two, DC's Earth 2 stories were both exotic and compelling. Exotic because they were almost, slash, not quite 
like the familiar versions we see in the mainstream continuity, adding an extra X factor to those stories. Compelling because, as you noted in the show, anything could happen. Characters married, had children, retired or died, or otherwise changed in a way that their Earth-1 counterparts couldn't or at least weren't allowed to. Roy Thomas in particular heightened the sophistication and drama, by 1980s standards, by creating character-driven stories that involved continuity and superhero action. Unlike the two of you, I admit to a serious enjoyment of the Golden Age stories. There's something wide open and undomesticated about those earlier tales. They aren't as modern or as creatively solid for obvious reasons, but they nonetheless push the limits of what comics were and could be at the time, even if they seem naive, trite, or old-fashioned these days. To each his own, of course, but that's partly what makes these characters compelling, too. Uh, they have persisted in various interpretations for a long, long time. Each decade or two brings its own creators and reinvention slash reinvigoration. So thank you very much, for uh, Dion, for writing a, a really well-thought-out email there. Absolutely. I'm going to make one additional note. I got a Facebook message from Frankie Adiego. Who uh, who corrected me, uh, which which I, I don't have a problem with because if I get something wrong, I want I want to be uh, pinged on it. Uh, I I had mentioned that the Batman Wildcat team ups that happened in Brave and the Bold took place on Earth One. I completely forgot that they actually took place on Earth B. You know, at the time you said that, I was thinking I was racking my brains going. I think I didn't think you were wrong, but I thought that there was another Earth where some of those stories took place, and I could not, for the life of me, remember what Earth it was. And now that you say that Earth B, that's right. I think Earth B, if memory serves, was specifically that Earth. Yes. And it may have even been more than just the Batman Wildcat Earth. It may have actually been like the catch-all earth for shit from like mostly brave and the bold that just didn't fit anywhere else i used to know those so well and i and you know since i mean it's been 20 years since they've been actively used so all that information's a little rusty in my head but one of those i want to say it's probably the official oh my god what is the title of that book the official crisis on Infinite Earths crossover index, or no, actually, it's just index. I don't think it's the crossover index. I think it's just the index has a breakdown of all the different Earths. I'll have to look that up because I I, I think you're right. I think Earth B was was the Batman, Wildcat, Brave and the Bold team-up Earth, but I think it also... I think it's also the Earth where Superman worked at the Daily Planet in the Golden Age. Ah, you could be right. I, I remember right. reading that. I, I uh, My wife, a couple Christmases ago, was was very nice and got me the Crisis on Infinite Earths Absolute Edition, uh, which has a, a supplementary book with it that not only reprints those two indexes from Crisis, but also gives a list of every single alternate Earth from every single imaginary tale from the 50s and 60s and 70s. Yeah, yeah, rub it in. See, I bought the one before that. Well, actually, it was bought for me, the one before that, that was, like, supposed to be, you know, this is the, the, the big deal. And uh, my wife bought it for me the, the Christmas that came out. And wouldn't you know it, like, a, a, while, a little while later, they did, do that Ultimate Edition, which throws in all this bonus. And I was like, God damn it, that happens to me every well, time. You, you, can, you can come over and look at it. Be advised, I will have the taser there if you try to make a break for it. Uh, no, I plan to get at one of these. I, I have to own it. I have to own everything that has crisis on oh, so it. At, at this it's point. such a beautiful recoloring. But uh, speaking of the Golden Age stories, I was kicking around a, a, a new feature here. I say new feature as if we've been around a while. But uh, right after Scott and I recorded the first two episodes of this show... I uh, lucked out on eBay, the eBay gods were kind to me, and managed to get a copy of All-Star Comics Archives Volume 1 with shipping for 16 bucks. So I thought it might be fun, since we're talking about these characters, to kind of look at the look at the early, early, like these are the first four issues of All-Star Comics with the Justice Society in them. And as I started reading them, I realized that it would be almost impossible in a very short segment to cover an entire issue because these things were 64 pages long, and there were like eight pages to uh, eight stories to them. Excuse me. 
So what I thought it might be fun is to just go over the introductory scene and the first story from All-Star number three and give you all kind of a look back, uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, to what it was like when the JSA first formed. And the first thing I'm going to say is uh, Johnny Thunder is a tool. I guess that's the only way I could really describe it. Uh, we, we talked before about my my non-like, I guess you could say, of, of Johnny Thunder, and this issue did nothing to make me like him more. So under that really iconic cover of the eight in, initial members of the of the society sitting around the conference table, which is actually repeated on the title page with the very first JSA roll call, you have... Uh, Johnny Thunder staring at a comic book rack on a newsstand. And essentially, he's just he's just bitching that he didn't get invited to the Justice Society meeting. Why should you get invited to the Justice Society meeting? You're barely a hero. Do you, now, everyone knows Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt. You know, he's, he's the secondary, like, little pink character. At this time, there was no real Thunderbolt. It was just this invisible type thing that helped him do things. So basically, you have Johnny Thunder whining about how no one invited him to the meeting of the Justice Society, and basically every bad feeling I've ever had about this character was vindicated. Anytime Johnny says the words, say you, it conjures the Bandnesian... Do you know how to pronounce that? I think that's right, isn't it? Bandnesian? I think so. Genie. Not quite... Like I said, the tried and true Thunderbolt yet. And anything Johnny wishes for, he gets. So after he wishes he could get invited to the party, he is suddenly at the party and he meets up with Dr. Fate and is informed that Sandman slipped everybody a roofie to put the hotel to sleep so they could have their dinner in peace. (laughs) Why are they staring in other people's rooms? This is kind of creepy. So wacky hijinks ensue. Basically, anything Johnny says happens. So, you know, the Flash shows up. He goes, hey, cool down, Mr. Flash. You ain't so hot. And the Flash gets a case of the chills. At one point, he talks about how he doesn't, he doesn't want to swell head, and his head shrinks. So it, it, it's, it's kind of goofy, actually. And he basically ruins dinner, but then wishes for a very big dinner. And, and he's like, well, why don't you all sit around and tell stories about your your latest adventures so the flash steps up first now here's the weird thing about this issue in particular i don't know if it continues into others but it actually has the character addressing the audience like they know they're in a comic book it's really kind of weird but he starts talking uh about at the behest of his girlfriend Joan Williams, Jay Garrick helps out Tim Rogers, the father of one of Jones's friends, who is looking for buried treasure out at sea and is having some problem with a band of roughnecks. Uh, the, you know, the gist of the story is that the, hel- the Flash helps Rogers out and stops the cutthroats, who are led by Burly Billy. Yes, that is his name. At one point, he fights a shark who actually has a thought balloon. Am I seeing things? Or wasn't there a nice, juicy man just here as the Flash swims out of the way? I love the Golden Age. <laughs> when, sharks have, when sharks have thought balloons, this is, this is an era I can get into. Um, you know, it's, it's a goofy little story. Everyone introduces themselves at sea as, as sure as my name is. It's like, as sure as my name is Tim Rogers, that's a torpedo sent by those devils on the Nancy K. And when you're introduced to Burly Billy, he's like, as sure as my name's Burly Billy, I'll have the hide of the guy who stole that equipment. I mean, it's not world-spanning. There are no supervillains. It's just the Flash helping out an old man and hunting for some good old-fashioned uh, sunken treasure. So, I really liked it. I liked it a lot, a lot more than I thought I was, as a matter of fact. And it's just, it's just such a weird time in comics. Because I've read a lot of Superman and Batman stories from this time, and I don't remember any of them ever referring to the audience like they knew they were in a comic book. Do you? Well, you know, Superman would frequently do that thing at the end of the story where either he or Clark Kent would wink at the audience sometimes, like especially if they'd pulled a fast one on Lois Lane and made her look like a complete moron because she'd failed to figure out that they were the same guy or something like that. But other than that, you know, blatantly breaking the fourth wall to address the audience, no, I don't 
off the top of my head, I can't think of an instance, but uh, the the little bit of uh, of these classic like all star comics that I've read, I, I can remember them doing that w- with a certain amount of regularity back then. You know, in in those introductory scenes, you know, where where it was the transition between one one hero's adventure and another, because even though they were a team, you know, in a lot of these early adventures, they were only seen as a team in the introductory section, and then each every chapter of that comic would be a different hero's adventure. So you weren't really seeing them out on an adventure as a team. Well, you know, I, I'm just glad that Gardner Fox and the artists n- never had the uh, never had the foresight to really mess with their audience by having like the the kids turn a page and suddenly all the characters are just kind of staring at them <laughs> blankly. <laughs> We're watching you. Ah, throw the comic on the yeah, ground and it yeah, bursts in the flames. That would freak you out. <laughs> Then again, I'm the guy that wants the Care Bear stare. This is really an odd tangent. Uh, the Care Bear stare not to be shit coming out of their stomachs, but them just staring at somebody uncomfortably until they give up. <laughs> <laughs> like with that weird Dark Knight Joker music playing in the background. <laughs> oh, God. But that's it for, for, for this week. Uh, wacky hijinks on the high seas with The Flash, and Johnny Thunder is a jackass. So... <laughs> I can see right now that Johnny Thunder is going to be your uh, Jimmy Olsen for this for this podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, he is. And if they ever team up, God help oh, no. the podcasting audience. I think that would break the break the world or something. Because <laughs> you hate Jimmy Olsen. I, I, I've really come to dislike Jimmy Olsen quite. And they both wear bow ties. Yep. You know, really and truly, if you if you color Johnny Thunder's hair red, it is Jimmy Yeah, Olsen. pretty much. Yeah, it's Jimmy Olsen <laughs> with a magic thunderbolt. A magic naked thunderbolt. That's just uncomfortable on all kinds of levels. Oh, good Lord almighty. Well, I had a just a quick bit of uh, of Justice Society news to throw out there. I don't know how much news this really is, but it's kind of sort of fits under that banner, so I thought I'd mention it. Um, you and I had done a uh, an episode, a special episode of Back to the Bins. That was kind of what led up to us doing this show, The Tales of the Justice yes. Society, in which we covered the publishing history of Hugo Danner. Not long after we did that, I did a little bit of follow-up on Hugo Danner, and it turns out that he's made some appearances in the uh, the Manhunter title. It turns out, and this is a big spoiler, by the way, spoiler alert, Manhunter, the current Manhunter that is appearing as a backup feature in Batman Streets of Gotham, turns out she is the granddaughter of Hugo Danner. Uh-huh. So I thought that that was really cool. Wait a minute. No, she's she would be the the granddaughter of uh, Arne Monroe, rather. So she's the yes. great granddaughter of Hugo Danner. Anyway, I thought that was really cool. It explains a lot of why she could take such an utter pounding yeah. in so many of her adventures in her own you know title that got canceled before she uh, got picked up for this Batman title. But anyway. Uh, I'm going to be checking that out and uh, and following that up because I was reading Manhunter for a while and then kind of petered out on it, but now I'm interested to get back into that title, knowing that she has that tie to uh, to Danner and to Arne Monroe. So I just thought I would uh, make the audience aware of that if they were not already. Wasn't Obsidian a backup character in that as well, or a uh, supporting character with her for a while there? Because I read Manhunter off and on. And I seem to remember Todd Rice being one of her supporting characters. Possibly, possibly. I'm I'm trying to remember what issue I made it up to, and I cannot remember. But it does seem to me like he was being, yeah, yeah, because I think he, he was dating somebody in her office. Yeah, one of the guys. In yeah, her yeah, something like that. So yeah, I do kind of remember him being around, but I, at, the, at the point that I'm read up to, I don't know that he was like full blown member of the cast yet, or if he had just kind of been seen around in the background kind of thing. So she's a legacy character on two fronts. Absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm not going to spend three ninety nine for streets of Gotham just to get an eight page backup with her. See, that's kind of my problem with it too. If that book was two ninety nine, 
I'd think about it, but at three ninety nine, yeah, I don't think I will. But I may keep up with it anyway, just you know, in the secondary market or what, because uh, something tells me that that's going to be one of those books that's not going to maintain that price probably in the not. secondary market. That's probably going to be a dollar or fifty cent bin find at some point. So uh, I'll be tracking that. Sweet, you <laughs> gotta love those uh, cheapy back in, back issue bins. So are we ready to get into our review proper, or did you, did you have anything else there? Well, don't we have our character profile? Well, I'd, did you want to do that now, or do you want to do the character? Because I had it scheduled for after the, the actual well, issue review, but how do you... Uh, then, then, then let's do the review, sir. You're doing the uh, synopsis this this uh, okay. this week, so... All right. Okay, for this, for this episode, we are covering All-Star Comics number 59, which is dated as the March-April issue, 1976. We have cover by Ernie Chan. Um, at this point, was still calling himself Ernie... How do you pronounce this? Choa? Chua? I'm not sure. I think so. Something like that. With inks by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, one of my favorites. Written by Jerry Conway with an assist by Paul Levitz. Interior art is handled by Rick Estrada, who would go on to a wonderful career as John Poncherello on the uh, show Chips. <laughs> Inked by Wally Wood. Original cover price, 25 cents. And the story title is Brainwave Blows Up. I love that title. It's excellent. Roll call for this issue is The Flash. Hawkman, Dr. Midnight, Wildcat, Dr. Fate, Green Lantern, the Star-Spangled Kid, Robin, and Power Girl. And the story synopsis, we start out and we see Brainwave. God, he's weird looking. I I like his outfit and all, but he's got those big, goofy, bulging bug eyes. He he looks like, I don't know, I had an aunt that had a medical condition that later have bug eyes like this and I'm, I'm wondering if this, this guy needs some sort of medication but anyway he is using his brain to zap the Justice Society he's screaming out die Justice Society die and they're all collapsing and they can't withstand the power of the brainwave well it turns out they're all just illusions that he's created anyway for his own I don't know his own amusement or whatever so he's been able to take them out but I mean it's not much of an accomplishment they were just figments of his imagination and somebody shows up that he identifies simply as old friend. And they both call each other constantly old friend, old friend. It gets a little old after a while. Um, but this person looks like just uh, like a decrepit old bum or something who's shown up and, and Brainwave is, uh, is taking mercy on him and telling him that he's going to restore him or whatever. We cut to Power Girl, Wildcat, and The Flash have arrived at the uh, Justice Society's headquarters at their, basically their brownstone. And Wildcat is telling her that, you know, you're not a member, we're not going to let you in. And they stand out front having a little argument while The Flash finally says, look, you know, she's, you know, I don't think she's paying any attention to you. You better just go ahead and let her in. This is an emergency. Quit screwing her around. So he runs in. Wildcat holds the door open for Power Girl and makes a sexist remark. She slams the door right in his face, right on his nose. I love it. And then we see the Flash watching Robin in Cape Town, South Africa, and he realizes that you know the JSA members that are there are in trouble and that the man responsible is Brainwave and that they've got to take off. They've got to go deal with the situation. So it shows this this really cool shot of the JSA skyrocket blasting into outer space. Now, I don't remember ever seeing this thing before, and it sure as hell looks like the JLA satellite from Earth-1. Yes, it does. It's, it's really kind of <laughs> bizarre. It doesn't look like a spaceship to me. We cut back to... Uh, well, we cut to Robin who is in Cape Town, South Africa. He is trying to deal with this massive gas leak that is that has come from this it's like a fissure that opened in the ground or something and it's it's gassed all the people and everybody's unconscious at this point except for him. And he drives an explosive explosives truck into the fissure. It goes off and it should have closed the fissure, yet the gas is still leaking out. And Robin can't figure out, what what is it? What's going on with this situation? So finally he gets an idea. He takes his nose plugs out, and he doesn't collapse. And he realizes this is all in his mind. It's all an illusion. 
and all these thugs start showing up and Robin is beating the hell out of these guys. When Green Lantern comes to, shines his magic ring on the on these thugs and reveals that they're actually just innocent bystanders that Robin's been busting up. So this has all been some really weird psychic illusion type of thing that's been going on. We cut to Hawkman carrying Dr. Midnight and they're flying around Seattle when suddenly they're attacked by guys that look pretty much like the same guys that Robin was just battling in his mind, except they've all got jetpacks and they're able to fly in the air and everything. So in order to try to free up Hawkman so that he can fight, Dr. Midnight lets go uh, of his hands and slides back. He intends to hold on to Hawkman's foot, but then he slips and he falls. We cut to the star-spangled kid, and he's zipping around, and he gets the idea that he's going to fly down with his gravity rod and seal this earthquake fissure that, that has happened, You know, basically bring all the, the plates and everything back together and hope to stop the earthquake. He does this and just barely escapes before the uh, the plates come crashing together, and he just about, just about gets squished trying to do that. As he comes flying up out of the fissure, Dr. Midnight slams into him, and he's able to uh, keep the both of them aloft. So he saves Dr. Midnight, They and then he goes, and uh, he and Dr. Midnight assist Hawkman, who's battling all these flying goon guys. And they overpower them. They take one of them hostage, and Dr. Midnight uses something, a power that I didn't realize he had, which is some sort sort of infrared vision power where he can tell if somebody is is telling a lie or telling the truth or not. I don't know that this has ever been seen before if it's ever, or it'll ever be seen again. I just don't recall it if it has been seen before or since. But the bad guy reveals that their boss is Brainwave and everything. We cut to Brainwave who's uh, you know at his secret headquarters or whatever and he's got his old friend, this decrepit old guy, this bum-looking guy, strapped into this chair, and he's zapping him with some sort of energies, trying to restore him from the broken man that he is now back into what Brainwave says was perhaps the greatest of the Injustice Society. And suddenly, you know, he gets charged up and is reinvigorated and revealed to be Degaton, greatest genius of all time. So he and uh, Brainwave shake hands, and then you know they they form their new alliance. They're going to be the new badass, you know, supervillain team. When suddenly there's a knock on their door, much like in Superman the movie, where Superman, you know, caves in Lex Luthor's door, and we get the same kind of thing here with this big bulge in the side of Brainwave's secret headquarters. And suddenly Power Girl comes storming through. She belts Degaton, sends him flying. Brainwave's trying to zap the Flash. And there's just a, a whole great big wacky fight where, you know, here's two supervillains and this whole team of superheroes, yet Degaton still manages to sneak away constantly and find the time to retinker <laughs> all these machines into these really wild things like force fields and ray blasters and everything else. It's really, it's, it's wacky fun. Degaton is also able to he's like animate statues it's really kind of wacky the the different powers and the different things he's able to do he comes up with sonic cannons and all these crazy inventions and basically I, I love these kind of moments too where the heroes keep trying to tackle these villains especially like lame villains it really cracks me up they, they keep charging them one at a time yeah. getting owned and then they're like gee if we all team up well duh you are a team anyway you know why why is this such a big revelation that gee if we hit him all at the same time maybe we could overpower him it's like yeah genius you should have had that idea right from the get-go but they try to do that they try to all gang up and, and take brainwave out at one time but he's just way too powerful for them and then he reveals that his big plan is he's got this gravity displacement beam which is going to hurl the earth you know, send it spinning off either into the sun or away from the sun. I forget, but that that's his grand scheme anyway. For whatever reason, he's got it out for the whole Earth, not just the Justice Society anymore. So the Earth is in danger. Everybody's going to die. And somehow they come up with this wild idea that 
the the way to save this and the way to prevent whatever's going on is to send super, uh, Power Girl outside to push Brainwave's satellite headquarters thing away from the Earth and towards the sun? Yes. So... She does this, and inside this satellite, it starts to get wicked hot, and it's everybody <laughs> seems to be like sweating profusely, and they almost look like they're melting. It's hysterical. We see Brainwave regress from his current more or less human but bug-eyed state into his little tiny Dr. Savannah-looking state, and it, it looks like everything gets really hot and, and melted inside, which is why, I mean, if the, if the satellite headquarters is melting and it's made of metal then shouldn't the people be like spontaneously combusting at this point i'm not quite sure how that probably yeah, i'm not sure how that science works huh? but it is comic book physics yeah, so <laughs> there you go so simply by flying the headquarters close to the sun and then bringing it back away from the sun has managed to overpower whatever whatever thing that Brainwave was doing and, and made him regress to his crazy, wild, mad scientist-looking state. It's all over. You know, they, they take, uh, I presume anyway, it doesn't really show what they do with Brainwave or Degaton, so I'm presuming that they're taken into custody, but we get a, just a little two-panel epilogue where they're all congratulating each other and on how the adventure worked out. They saved the board, or you know, they saved Earth and everything. And Wildcat is being kind of patronizing to them at the end. You know, he's he's got his arms around the new members, Star Spangled Kid, Power Girl, and Robin, saying, you know, something to the effect of, you know, well, you know, it looks like these youngsters might show some promise and all despite them being wet behind the ears. And Power Girl in the last panel reminds him that basically <laughs> we did all the damn work in this adventure. The guys didn't do shit. We're the ones that saved the world. And so, you know, you get a very sour-looking wildcat at the end looking like, nah, jeez, you know? And everybody's laughing at him. I love it. I love issues that end like this with that wonky, you know... You can almost hear that Star Trek music. It's great. <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. The look on Wildcat's face is, if I wasn't absolutely sure that my fist would shatter, I would punch this woman dead in the face. <laughs> yeah, it really is. He's really he's nursing a major grudge in that piece. Damn it. You are absolutely right about Brainwave looking funky, especially on that first page. It's just like... <laughs> What is up with his eyes? He's got the I mean, bug eye thing going oh, on. Man. Time. Yeah. I don't funky as heck, man. It's just like just like wow, you're it's like the kind of guy you would like run into at three o'clock in the morning at what like a waffle house. <laughs> and you wouldn't want and you wouldn't want to make eye contact, but he'll constantly try to like strike up a conversation with you about something you have you have no desire to talk to this man about uh, about you know what's going on outside much less politics or anything and like, stop staring at me i love the the position his body is in too because i think it's supposed to look like he's running into the room but yeah. instead it looks like he's doing the popeye the sailor <laughs> dance like he's going it's it's hysterical i love it <laughs> All right, now my favorite, I think my absolute favorite panel in this is on page three, second panel, of how Power Girl is carrying Wildcat. Yeah. What? Where, where is her hand? That is the wackiest position for him to be flying or, or being carried in. It just looks, it's really bizarre. It looks very uncomfortable and... He looks sad, too. He looks like, oh, my God, this is so humiliating kind of look on his face. I really like this, it. This broad is holding me, and I don't want no nothing to do with her. And <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's how Wildcat talks. I mean, that's how Wildcat talks here, because that's the voice I hear. Right. He, he's like he's like Bibbo from Superman the Animated right. Series. He's like, ooh, soder. So <laughs> My absolute favorite panel is on page four. It's the second one of Power Girl. She's if you like if you like a busty Power Girl mm -hmm. with a with a waist that makes you uh, question whether or not Kryptonians have a digestive system. Um, 
This is the one for you. This is apparently one of the issues that Jeanette Kahn didn't get to see beforehand because there are serious cleavage lines all over this issue for Power Oh, yeah. And sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. But she is stacked like the Library of Congress on this page. I really like that panel because, you know, progressively over the years, I think that Power Girl has gotten less and less – less and less attractive a lot of times. I mean, a lot of times she's drawn very – I don't know what the term is. Just kind of, kind of butch. You know what I mean? Yeah, like Alex Ross draws her. Yeah, I, I really don't like that at all. I don't. I don't like how he draws women outside of Wonder Woman. But the only reason I like his Wonder Woman is because it looks like Linda Carter. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I like her here. She's really she's drawn very cute. You know, she's very feminine, yeah. very sexy. I really like it. And there's a lot going on with her. It's not like a Michael Turner drawing, right? May he rest in peace. Where it's like those girls are like freaking mannequins, you know. She's she's got this cockeyed smile because she knows in about five seconds she's about to get one over on Wildcat, <laughs> you know, for being a patronizing, uh, a patronizing scumbag. Unfortunately, jumping ahead just a bit, uh, this is the last time we're going to see Power Girl in this kind of amusingly feminist role, I guess you could say. Right. Not that she's being funny, but that she's she's more confident in this, and I think in later issues, she becomes more of a caricature of what a male artist in the 70s, a male writer in the 70s, would think of as what a feminist would be. Right. Instead of, you know, actually what it might be, so. And that is such a weird transition on this page, too, of, of them taking off in the JSA Skyrocket. You really have to read... The, the caption boxes to know what the heck is going on on this page. Right. Because if you didn't have any dialogue here, it's like, well, why Why is that satellite taking off? On page 17, second panel, should that panel be making me as tingly as it does? <laughs> well, you know, I was fighting the urge when you were saying that, you know, the, 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 the satellite is bulging like in... In Superman the movie, I'm like, you know, if Power Girl was trying to get into my house, I'd probably be bulging. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's Mike's sexist joke for the episode. No, she looks like she's really enjoying pushing up against that. Yes, set. she does. It kind of makes me wonder if, like, well, it almost does with the lines the way they're drawn. It looks like the satellite might have a vibrating feature on it. So I think that adds you a know, little bit of something to what's going on there. I don't know. But but overall, I do like the Power Girl Wildcat uh, relationship. It's like Wildcat is the old-fashioned, borderline misogynistic man. Power Girl is a strong-willed feminist. Together, they make the new odd couple. Now, have they ever just finally just broke down and done it? Because I can't remember, but they need to so badly. Because it comes down to like the moot lighting thing. After a while, it's like, all right, you two, just get it the hell over with. All right, we know that there's something between you. you know? I'm just gonna go right down and, and say it. Um, Dagaton's look in this episode. I mean, this issue sucks. Yeah, it does. Uh, I love his costume. He's like my height. He's like five two, five well, I'm five five, but he's like really, really short. And he's got, like, that, that pseudo, like, militaristic Nazi look to him most of the time. And in this one, he looks like he looks like he's going to an alternative club. <laughs> he, yeah, that's how I'm going to say that. <laughs> he, yeah, he looks very, I don't know, he, he's got almost like a, he almost looks like a, like a caveman. Or something that's been yeah, given. He, he looks like a caveman wearing what people thought futuristic clothes would look like, or something. It's it's a really weird look. Yeah, when does he get that militaristic look? I don't. He had it in the Golden Age. Ah, okay. And I know he gets it in All Star Squad. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if he because I haven't been reading ahead. I've been just sticking to the issues that we are covering in the one or two that we record at a time. I haven't read ahead to see if he comes back, but I just hate, you know, why in the future do people not wear pants? Who, who decided that? I mean, what the heck is going on here? I don't know. Well, for one thing, his, his outfit looks very Marvel Comics villain to me because, you know, if Marvel Comics taught me one thing is that bad guys wear purple. 
you know, and that's what he's got going on. He's he's all dressed in purple and everything, so he almost looks like a Marvel bad guy to me. But yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that. Well, he feels like a Marvel bad guy. Too. Yeah, he does. And I think that's just because Jerry Conway got his big start writing at Marvel Comics in the early seventies. I liked this issue, though. I did get a kick out of it. It's not terribly deep or anything like that, but I think just the fact that it, it brings back Degaton, I think, is interesting, and I'm hoping next time around a little bit more, because really, he's brought back and then doesn't really do much of anything. You know, we, we see that he's supposed no. to be some sort of you know, super genius that can take, you know, an, an electric toothbrush and turn it into a death ray. But other than that, you know, nothing really comes of him at all. You know, he doesn't really amount to much in this. This is really brainwave story. Yeah. Um, you know, my final notes are kind of like, kind of like you. It's a fun little adventure. It gets a, it gets the band back together, basically. I thought the art was much stronger in this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, except for the cover. I'm not a real big fan of this cover. I don't like how Jay Garrick looks on this cover for some reason. I don't know why. There's a, I can't there's a comic cover that I'm struggling to remember what it is. Maybe Captain America, where the stone statue or whatever it's made of, of, uh, of Abraham Lincoln, that sits in the, <laughs> in the Lincoln Memorial, is belting the hero... And that's every time I look at this cover, even though the the statue looks nothing like Lincoln, that's still what I picture is that that the flash is being belted by Abraham Lincoln just because it looks so much. Is am I right? Is that a Captain America cover? I th- I think you're right. I yeah. can't I can't think of off the top of my head. I mean, I'm sure I could do like a quick uh, search of Grand Comics database. And look at like a bunch of Captain America covers, but that would create more editing down the road for me. So we're just going <laughs> to skip that for right now. <laughs> no, it's just just a, just a really neat issue. Uh, are we ready to move on to the ads? Oh yeah, definitely. You know what? I went and put uh, my issue away and totally forgot about the ads. Let me whip it back out again here, because yeah, that I'm looking forward to that that feature. That's something that. Uh, we don't do on the other shows that I do often enough is talk about the great ads and things that are in the books. So yeah, I, I want I definitely want to do that. And we, and of course we have the hostess ad, but we'll get to that. In a oh yeah. <laughs> now right off the bat, what, what strikes your eye right off the bat? Cause this really does have some great ones. I love anytime there's a slim Jim ad, I get them. <laughs> yeah, there, there is a, there it's, it's the hungry werewolf slim Jim ad. We did have the Daisy air rifle ad. Uh, at the beginning, on the inside cover, you've got the kind of makes me uncomfortable bodybuilding ads. Have you ever known anybody that got to look this way by comic book ads? I mean, I'd really like to know if there was ever anybody who became like Mister Universe by following one of these ads in a in a comic book. N- no, not at all. In fact, most of the people that read comic books are either under undernourished or overnourished. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, they're bulking up. They're just bulking up because they go and, and have the man-sized meal at, uh, at McDonald's, which consists of a double-quarter pounder meal supersized with a fish fillet sandwich on the side. Yeah, it's a wonder I'm overweight. <laughs> Don't eat like that anymore, though, I'll tell you that. No, there, there's a couple fun ones. I uh, just want to knock out the, fun, the, the quick ones, the half-pagers. They've got the superhero stick-ons uh, on the opposite page of nine, where apparently they had these vinyl... I guess, uh, what are these called now? They have these that you can get. I'm trying to remember what they're called. Clings? Not Clings. They have like a brand name because at first it was just like Sports Stars, but then slowly they've added Superman and Batman and Spider-Man to it. Oh, I know uh, what you mean. Um, Yeah, I can't think of the name of it either. They're they're like for for like a kid's room or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't think of what they're called, but... I love these ads. These ads ran for a long time in comics for different things like stick-ons or standees mm-hmm. or movable, you know, figures or whatever. I love them because they're made up for the most part of the most iconic images of particular yes. characters. So I mean, looking at this one, you've got like uh, what is that Batman? That's probably like a Neil Adams Batman, right? That's a Neil Adams Batman. You got a couple of Kurt Swan Supermans. You have a Gil yep. Kane Green Lantern. Yep. 
Uh, Carmine Infantino on the Flash there, and I, I'm not sure on that Green Arrow. Might um Mike Grell possibly? I'm not sure. Possibly Mike Grell, but you got like that that kind of I don't know if that's a Jim Aparo Aquaman, but that's kind of an iconic. Uh, iconic shot of him swimming. I call that the "Ow my back" Aquaman. <laughs> God, sweet Jesus, why again? I can't straighten up. <laughs> oh man, the bends. Well, well. Speaking of iconic, on the opposite page, yes. uh, on the opposite of page uh, fifteen, uh, jumping ahead a little bit, you have the biggest life hangups, where you have like these movable arms and legs, Superman, and you got Batman putting his arm around Superman uh, uncomfortably uh, for me. I don't know what this kid is going to do with these Superman two. Superman looks uncomfortable, too. Yeah. He's like, dude, you're in my space. I'm so- and the kid looks like, I- I've always wanted this story to play out like this in my head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Th- th- this, is, this, is, uh, this is primitive slash fiction. I guess just what go. I'm saying. I was trying to think of a term. I could not think of it. <laughs> but outside of the hostess ad, the two big ads that, that I saw in this are, uh, are one, the on the opposite of page 10, Justice for All Includes Children. Yes. This is obviously a Neil, Neil Adams. Adams yeah. And Superman says, Justice for All Includes Children. In a democracy... Or a republic, but that's okay. In a democracy, every citizen has a duty to know and to obey the law. I want you to know about the law so that you can be a good citizen. Look for me, learn about the law, and make your community a better place. But there is a kid with, like, a serious afro on the very front of that picture that looks like, the, at last, the world <laughs> is mine. <laughs> I mean, it's just so creepy. It's just like all the other kids are kind of paying attention. You got the little girl in the Batman shirt standing by Superman, and you know what he's thinking. It's like, really? That's what you're going to wear? You show up to the photo shoot in a Batman shirt. Well, this kid to to uh, our left, you know, to the left of Superman, he looks like he's like sniffing on Superman's armpit, too. I don't know what's up with that. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of creepy. It's just, but, it, but he's got a styling vest going. On. I like his platform shoes myself. Oh hell yeah! And the girl's wearing the girl in the Batman shirt is wearing like some kind of uh, sandals or something. It's a, it's it's very hippie. This was um, this was something that that ran in DC Comics for a while. The Justice for All includes children. Yep. And I I looked forward to them because most of them, not all of them. But most of them were drawn by uh, by Neil Adams, and oh, his Superman is just unparalleled. I think it, it's just beautiful. Of course, the, at the bottom it says publishes a public service in cooperation with the National Center of Juvenile and Delinquency, the, the Research Division of the National Council of Juvenile Court Judges, and National Periodical Publications Incorporated. <laughs> that was off the top of my wow, head. Wow, you I'm should do the micro machine commercials, man. <laughs> well, my Me and John, my favorite John Machida. I'm sorry. John Mashita. <laughs> that was the name of the guy, I think, that did the... He was also Blur on the Transformers. Ah. Go on. Well, the the one that uh, that really strikes me in this, besides the Hostess ad, is the center... You could almost call it the centerfold of the issue, because it's right smack in the middle of the book, is you've got one page that's all of the... Like famous first edition, limited collector's edition, all new uh, collector's edition, or whatever they were called, all those giant size publications. Yeah, that you could we, we kind of talked about it, la- the, some of them last episode, but this was the one we really wanted to talk yeah, about. Yeah, because on the opposite page is the solicitation for the greatest superhero team up of all time, the Battle of the Century. Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man, and this man, says it all. Yeah, I'm, I love the cover. I mean, I love that whole book. The, that book mm-hmm. is beautiful. The art, you know, the the fact that it's it's that mega awesome oversized. You know, you really get some great panels in that. You know, it, it just really felt like what it was it felt epic because of the art it was just huge and i love that book one of these days i've got to on on one of the myriad of shows that i'm on now i've got to review that book because i I love that story so much 
Well, maybe we can do a special Back to the Bins where you talk about that one and I'll talk about the sequel. Ooh, that would be fun. I would love to do that. But uh, no, what I what I like about these ads, though, one these these first editions. Uh, there's a Shazam one that's actually a photo cover of Jackson Bostwick. Yep. Um, which I've always kind of wanted. I saw it at a flea market years and years and years ago. Well, I was going to run through those with you if you thought we had time. Okay. What, yeah, yeah, we got we got plenty what of these, time. Really what of these do you think that you have? Because I'm looking at these and I'm thinking, except for except for Dick Tracy, Ghosts, and let me see. Dick Tracy, Ghosts, Tarzan, and the Bible. I actually think I have all of these. I'd, I'd have to double check to be absolutely sure, but I, I've got most, if not all of these. Well, my, my collection's a little spottier because you know these basically came out the year I was born, so I wasn't really collecting comics at the time. I was getting I was getting that whole breathing thing uh, down pat. <laughs> um, but uh, that sounded a lot snarkier than I thought it, than I, no, it to be. No. I apologize. Uh, the ones I would like, because I have that Superman one down at the bottom. I know I have that one. But really and truly, I would like the Super Friends one just to get that Alex Toth cover. Detective 27, Batman number one, because I've always loved the covers to both of those. Yes. Uh, two very different, iconic Golden Age shots of Batman. All the Captain Marvel ones, that Batman one is just awesome. Uh, I would like that one. I'd like the Flash one. And I think I have Secret Origins of the Supervillains. But that's a very challenge of the Super Friends, even though that would have come out for a couple years. I love covers where the characters are running at each other. Because you know that the the ass-kicking of the year is about to commence. And especially that cover when you have... Well, I feel bad for the villains because Lex Luthor is about to turn into paste as is Dr. Savannah, and I don't think Captain Cold's going to last, but you know that Batman-Joker fight's going to be epic. Mm -hmm. Aw. God, I love Batman in the 70s. Me too. I really, I more, the older I get, the more I like that version of Batman the best, almost. That's that's my well, Batman, definitely the the Neil Adams era Batman. Neil Adams, uh, what's his name, Rogers, um, Marshall, Marshall Rogers. Rogers, yeah. Ah, oh, yes. love that stuff. Real quick before we get into the to the main feature of the ad segment, they do have an ad, and, and this is the great thing about comics in the seventies, especially looking at them now. And I can't imagine how annoying it must have been as a kid when you didn't have the money for this stuff. But you could actually order crap out of the comics. Oh yeah. And there is a Have a Super Year ad. This is across from page 12. You've got the Super DC calendar for 1976. Neil Adams. Which, was, which is a Neil Adams cover. Uh, only four ninety five. You've got Super Stunt Cycles with Joker, Batman, and the Penguin. You've got a Batman glider uh, plane, which is only $1.39. Get a super squirt with your Superman and Batman squirt gun, which makes me kind of uncomfortable because it looks like it comes out of their mouths. Yes, it does. Uh, When I first um, saw that, I don't know if you would remember this or not, but when I first saw that with the squirt guns, what I thought it was, do you remember? These made a brief comeback a couple years ago, but they were different from the ones that were out when I was a kid. It was a can of foam with a superhero head. It'd shake it up and push the button, and the foam would come out of the hero's mouth. And that's what I thought these were, but these actually are, are squirt guns. But those were the big deal when I was a kid because they, this was a foam that you would use in the bathtub. So you'd, you'd yes. have like a can of Superman, and like the, the, the head would be like a foam – or not foam, but like a, like a plastic head – on a on a on an aerosol can, and the aerosol can was was Superman's body, and you'd shake it up and push the button, and this foam would come out of his mouth, and it was like like scrubbing bubbles or something. But you could make like art, you could like draw on the tile of your bathroom, you know, on the like the tub tile or stuff. I, I loved that stuff when I was a kid. I don't know why they don't make stuff like that anymore. Uh, probably because it's really messy. But then again, I keep seeing ads for for dolls that wet themselves. <laughs> Projectile vomit and their head spins and stuff. So, yeah, that's kind of wrong. Well, I think that brings us to the hostess ad for the show. Okay, so we have Shazam in the cupcake caper. 
we see Billy Batson and he's uh, on air at uh, what was this? This was Wiz Radio. Actually, it looks W H I Z. But it looks like or he's, is it the television? yeah. This looks like a TV studio. Yeah, because because when they when he came back, he went from being a uh, radio uh, announcer to being a television. Uh, Anchorman. Ah, I don't remember that. I know I remember Clark Kent going from being a newspaper man to a to a newscaster, but I don't remember Billy doing that. I didn't read a whole lot of the return that Shazam series anyway, to be honest with you. But anyway, Billy is reading the news and he's going, "Holy moly! We've just gotten word that it's the strange disappearance of cupcakes around the world is continuing." And he goes to, I guess this must be his producer or something. He says. Unless something is done about these cupcake crooks, kids could be in real trouble. If only we could get in touch with Captain Marvel. So Billy goes to the window and says, Shazam! Shazam! And there's a bolt of lightning and he turns into Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel says, Obviously there's cupcake there's a cupcake caper. My problem is to find who's behind it and where they've stashed the goodies. So then we cut to apparently a warehouse where the master criminal of the year is stealing a bunch of boxes of hostess cupcakes. Put the hostess cupcakes over there, Max. Right, Chief. That completes the cupcake caper. We've got all the cupcakes now. Captain Marvel comes smashing through the tile ceiling and says, Not so fast, dumb one. I suppose you want us to return these hostess cupcakes to the kids because they like the devil food cake, chocolatey icing, and creamy filling. That's right. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's hard to read when you're tearing up from laughing so hard. Yes. He says, that's correct, my fiendish friend. <laughs> that's why I'm ending your caper right now. Thanks for ending the cupcake caper, back, Captain Marvel. That's what friends are for, kids. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Cupcakes. I just had some of those. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Poor well, Captain almost- Marvel. He goes from yeah. actually whooping Superman's ass for a, for a brief time in sales in the 1950s to now he's saving the the world's cupcake supply. It's it's you know how the mighty have fallen. It's very very sad. Then again, Batman. You know, last last time you know did the fruit pies thing. So, uh. so there you go. Um, that almost wraps up the episode. We do have our character profile of the month, as uh, we thought that would be a fun thing to do. Of the week. Of the week. Of the week. Of the week. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> I, 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 can, I can remember stuff at 1130 at night. Who do we got this month? A week. Damn it! <laughs> we have... Our character spotlight this week is one of my favorite Earth 2 characters, the Earth 2 Robin. Um, he was created, of course, by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. This is the arguably the Golden Age Robin. This is the Robin that was the sensational character find of 1940. And, you know, if you're familiar with Robin in any incarnation, it's basically the same origin. You know, he was a circus acrobat, part of the Flying Graysons. You know, he was a young kid who, you know, saw his parents murdered by, I don't know, was a mobster or something. You know, became the ward of, of Bruce Wayne. Oh, yeah, that's right. Taken under Batman's wing and became, you know, Robin the crime fighter. Where these, you know, where this Robin is different and diverges from the Robin of, say, you know, modern comics, for example, is that this is a Robin that never relinquished his Robin identity, even though he grew up to manhood. And you know, I'm, I, you know, like you and I were discussing before, th- I imagine that the Robin that we're seeing in this series is probably in his 40s. I'm thinking something like that. And I, and I would also say that unlike Superman, you could really plug in the Golden Age adventures of this Robin uh, and have it be the same history. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, but but really, you know, it, there's really until well, let me see how I want to say this. Batman and Robin's adventures are entertaining to me from the golden age moving up to, through the decades until they start uh, until they until they start hanging out with aliens. Right. I think that's where I lose interest. Right. But, you know, I could see the scrappy Robin of those early Bob Kane, Bill Finger, whoever Bob Kane was paying that week to draw for him. 
uh, being the same character that we're the younger version of the character we're seeing in this. Book. Absolutely. From what I've been able to, to to research on this, I have not read this issue myself, but what is considered to be the first quote unquote official appearance of the Earth to Robin would be Justice League of America number fifty five. That being. The first appearance of a Robin that was specifically identified as being the Earth 2 version. Now, this is a Robin that looks, to me, he looks very bizarre. He has basically a a domino mask that is somewhat bat-shaped. He has Batman's outfit, like the classic, like Carmine Infantino Batman outfit, you know, with the utility belt, the blue boots and gloves. You know, the blue trunks, the gray outfit and everything. But the only thing that's different is he's got the, the, the Robin. It's like a cross between Robin's domino mask and like a like a bat symbol. And then he has a, a yellow cape that's ridged like Batman's, but it's yellow instead of blue. And then it has like a flare collar on it. A really bizarre look that... Uh, Thankfully, he didn't keep for a long time. You know, by the time God, I hate that costume. Yeah, well, I don't hate it. It's just really strange looking. And, and instead of having like a bat symbol on his chest, like Batman, you know, like the the either the the bat symbol plane or the bat symbol with a circle, it was on an R, a big letter R for Robin, but with bat wings attached to it. So it looks really strange. I don't hate it, but it's it's just really weird, and it's definitely not my favorite. The one he's wearing in this series, in All-Star Comics, I love the Golden Age, mm-hmm. or excuse me, the Earth 2 Robins outfit. I really, really like that because it, it, it owes, in my mind anyway, it's, it's that bridge between the classic slippered Robin and, like, Nightwing, or even, like, the modern Robin, really. You know, the... the- the one that we would see, like, say, on, like, the animated series or something like that. And like we mentioned in the very first episode, that that costume actually made its first appearance on the Earth-1 Dick Grayson in Justice League of America 92. Right. And uh, from from the dialogue, I'm guessing it was de- that costume was designed by Neil Adams. Now I, and I do have the action figure now, from the Crisis line. Oh, so, so. I was just looking at those on eBay today, as a matter of fact. i got to get me one. I wanted to thank you for pointing that out to me about JLA um, 91 and 92 because I have a copy of 92 and read it um, a couple of days ago, you know, because I've had it all these years and never read it. And I really, as wacky as the story was, I really liked the Robin element in there and and where he adopts that costume for the first time. So I got a big kick out of that. I, I didn't realize that the Earth won Robin actually wore that costume for the first time before the Earth 2 Robin would, would I guess he must be an Indian giver because he ended up with that outfit so <laughs> <laughs> wow it looks so good on him yeah, there you go. this costume I have sucks oh, this will take 20 years off me there you go <laughs> no but I, see I, I liked the Robin that was the only thing I really liked about that crossover was you had Dick Grayson kind of questioning where he was going with his life mm-hmm uh, the Earth One Dick Grayson, and yeah, the Earth Two Dick Grayson, like showing him, hey, you know, you can still do this. You know, it's possible. Now get out of that, you know, circus acrobat outfit and put on a decent pair of pants. <laughs> you young whippersnapper, get a haircut. Well, in researching in researching this history today, I found that there's another um, book out there that I don't have that I've got to track down, which is a. Uh, Brave and the Bold, I believe it was number 182, which is a team-up between the Earth-1 Batman and the Earth-2 Robin. And it's all done by uh, Apero, and it looks like a fantastic story. I've got to track this down and read it because it looked really, really interesting. And it, you, said, you said 182? I believe so. And it was cited as, you know, one of these issues where, you know, it added a little bit more character development to the Earth 2 Robin, where he basically comes to the realization that, you know, there's o- there was only ever one Batman, and he's going to stick with being Robin. He does not want to, you know, be ex-Batman. So, yeah, I really want to read that one. Yeah, I have it. It's it, you, You're right. It's awesome. And, and Jim Aparo... The Batman artist of the 70s, more so, I think, than Neil Adams in certain cases, though Neil Adams certainly drew a great Batman. He does a really good job oh, yeah. of that Earth 2 Robin costume. 
and he even and on that cover of Brave and the Bold 182 he even draws the old school uh, Batmobile too. Oh yeah, <laughs> sweet. Well, by the time of of the Robin that we're seeing in All Star Comics, Robin had uh, you know he'd gone to college, he'd become a lawyer. And now in this series, um, he was ambassador to South Africa. And that pretty much catches us up on where Robin is as a character uh, during, you know, this time frame. And, you know, as we discussed before, we'll revisit some of these characters as more things are, are added to their their resume and their, their character profiles because, you know, our first character, Power Girl, we couldn't say too much because it was her first appearance. And her character would change and mature and, and, and mutate quite a bit over the course of that character's history. So, you know, and so would Robin. So I'm really looking forward to reexamining those uh, characters in the future. Um, the only other note that I have is that this issue... Um, all-Star Comics number 59 is reprinted in both DC Special Blue Ribbon Digest number 3 from 1980 and in the Justice Society Volume 1 trade paperback, which I believe came out in 2006. And is sitting proudly on my bookshelf. Just in case anything ever happened to the individual issues, <laughs> I wanted backups. Because that's how I roll. You've been listening to Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. You can email the show by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. You can find the show at two, yes, count them, two websites. The first being www.fortressofbailey2.com. You can also find the show and subscribe to it through iTunes at www.2truefreaks.com. Libson.com. Scott has two other podcasts that he co-hosts on a weekly basis. The first is Two True Freaks, which Scott hosts with his childhood friend and former weightlifting partner of Lou Ferrigno, Chris Honeywell. Then there's Back to the Bins, which Scott co-hosts with a cavalcade of podcasting's finest hosts. Both of those can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has two other podcasts he hosts or co-hosts as well. The first is Views from the Long Box, which Mike hosts all by his lonesome for the most part. And you can find that at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's the From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor. That show can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. Thank you for listening, and join us next week as we present more Tales of the Justice Society of America. Let's get this show on the road, gang. Third Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com.